listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. a guy named John Huss who was born in 1369. He grew up in a, a poor family in southern Bohemia. That's now the Czech Republic. I'm sure most of you knew that. Yeah, yeah some of you laughed because you know you don't know that. John didn't like being poor. Go figure. Uh, so he decided that, that to get out of poverty, he was going to do the most natural thing, become a priest. Well, that might seem uh, a little bit absurd to us today, you have to understand that, that John Huss was born into a time where there was a lot of corruption in the church, and it was actually lucrative to go on to become a priest because a lot of religious leaders were misusing their power to manipulate people. So if you wanted to get out of poverty, becoming a priest meant wealth and status for you. Huss had a really sharp mind, so he actually had a career not just as a priest, but also as a professor. He was a brilliant thinker. And in the midst of leading churches where he didn't even believe the gospel that he was preaching, he was interacting with the Bible, and at a certain point, he ended up becoming a Christian while he was already a priest, and it revolutionized his life. Soon after Huss's life was revolutionized, he, he started preaching against the manipulative pastors and leaders who were preaching a false gospel. And guess what? They didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. So they told him to stop, and he refused. And then they began to threaten him, and he continued to persist in following Jesus Christ, even if it meant there would be consequences for him. And in 1414, they invited Huss uh, to, to come to a meeting of the religious leaders. They promised him that he was going to be safe. And they lied. And they blackmailed him. And they, they told him that he was going to be imprisoned if he didn't change the way he spoke about the rest of the priesthood. He refused to do that. So he was sentenced to death. And because of that, he lived in prison for a year uh, before he was eventually burned alive because of his faith in Jesus. And this is what he said to his persecutors before he was killed. Lord Jesus, please have mercy on my enemies. My trust is in the almighty God and in my Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed me and called me to preach his gospel to the last breath of life. His blessed name be praised by all. And every account of John Huss's death says that he died in that fire singing psalms from the Bible until he couldn't breathe anymore. John Huss's life and death are both compelling and strange. Most of us aren't excited about the idea of being burned alive. Some of us are surely still drawn to the faith of someone who knows Jesus so intimately, who's experienced Jesus so deeply that their life would be so radically transformed. 
There's a strange attraction to a story like those of John Huss. On the one hand, it's easy to think that John Huss is an all-star, next-level Christian. But on the other hand, of course, John Huss gave his life so that others could know Jesus. Because he understood that Jesus gave his life so that John Huss could know him. Is your life strange and compelling? Does your life make sense to the world? Or does the way you live cause people to ask, why do you do that, giving you a unique platform to tell others about your faith in Jesus? Church, I genuinely believe we should be different in the best way possible. Another strange and compelling Jesus follower named Paul, who wrote a letter to a young church in a town called Corinth, that's where we get our book in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, taught that young church about being different because they had recently trusted Christ in the area of Corinth, but their lives didn't change that much. Paul wanted them to experience life transformation. So this is what he wrote them in their first letter at the very beginning. He told the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. When we read something like that, we should ask the question, am I willing to be a fool for Christ? Are you willing to make different choices if it means making much of Jesus? Are you willing to be God-honoring weird to others in this life? When we started this sermon series a couple of weeks ago called Under Construction, and we're talking about what it means to be transformed by Jesus, the series started with the foundation that God changes our hearts. And we explained how that means God changes our motivation for living. It's no longer about me. My life now exists for God. Last week, we continued the conversation by talking about God changes our minds and we explained how that means he changes the lens through which we view ourselves and the world that we live in. We now see the world through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. Today we continue that conversation of being changed by talking about God changing our choices. What God does in us is he makes us sacrificially generous. He does that because he is sacrificially generous. In Paul's second letter to the young Corinthian church, called 2 Corinthians, uh, he gives the Corinthians a practical example of what it looks like to be transformed into someone who's sacrificially generous. Listen to what Paul tells the church in Corinth about this other collection of churches in a, in a nearby town called Macedonia. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1, And now, brothers... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trot, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. The first thing I think we can glean from this is that, that better circumstances aren't a prerequisite for joyful generosity. 
Hear that. Better circumstances aren't a prerequisite for joyful generosity. The church in Macedonia was in a really bad position. They're going through a lot of troubles. They're very poor. In the first century after Jesus' movement was becoming contagious and changing the landscape of entire towns, people were trying to put an end to it. So Christians were being persecuted. A lot of Christ followers were losing their jobs because of their faith. And the the powers that be in the Roman government and Jewish leadership were double-taxing Christians to make life harder for them. Christians were being snubbed. Sometimes this was even made worse by famine because the poor people ate last if they ate at all. So the Macedonians are going through all of this, and Paul is using them as an example because none of what was going on in the Macedonian church was going to stop them from participating in Jesus' mission. Wow. This is humbling for me to read because all of us have made decisions, have made excuses to justify not giving ourselves to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've caught yourself saying, I'll give more when I get the promotion, when I get the raise. I'll I'll do more when I finish these car payments. I'll prioritize ministry or church or Christian community when the kids are out of the house or when I retire. I'll make time for meaningful relationships once the playoffs are over. I'll start reading the Bible when work's not as busy. We make these deals with God that that will give him more when our circumstances get better. And we go through one challenging season of life into the next, missing opportunities to fully give ourselves over to the work of God who gave everything for us. The Macedonians have every reason not to give, but they gave joyfully. Paul is showing us that better circumstances are not a prerequisite for generous giving. Even today, statistics show that charitable giving doesn't increase with income. Some people make deals with God that once I get that that bump in income, that I'll become more generous. Statistics say that doesn't actually happen. And I think Paul hones in on why. Generosity isn't about our circumstances. It's about the attitude of our heart. We understand the length that God was willing to go to have us. It transforms the way we think about what we have. Paul is pointing out that generosity isn't about dollars and cents. He never gives reference to how much the Macedonian church gave. Why? Probably because they didn't give that much. (laughs) They didn't have a lot to give. But he's pointing out the generosity the attitude of their hearts. They are joyful givers, regardless of how much they have. It's not about the size of the gift. It's about the joyful attitude. Recently, um, my wife and I sat down with a couple who have been a part of King's community for the last year. And, and they, they very kindly shared a story that mattered to them with us. And they said, when, when we started coming to the church, you taught us that... that we're to love God, and we've never doubted that, but, but you also taught us to be devoted to the church because Jesus died for the church. And for, for some reason, we had missed that for a long time. But the real difference maker was you gave us an opportunity to participate in what you were doing. And to that couple, one of them, <laughs> volunteers in our King's Kids Ministry, ministering to other kids month in and month out because she loves the understanding of what Jesus did for her, and she wants to give that away to other people. 
for the husband of this couple, him getting a chance to participate in the ministry meant a couple of times a month, waking up a little bit extra early, hooking up his beautiful truck to our church trailer, bringing it here to unload and convert this school building into a church gathering space, staying long to put everything back in the trailer and then haul it back to keep it. He thanked us for the opportunity. They thanked us for the opportunity to participate in the work of ministry. It's not about how much they're giving. It's about their attitude. That's contagious. It's hard for me to believe that they feel blessed by the opportunity to take part in helping bring God's story to life. But when we focus on the way Jesus gave his life for us, it changes our attitude about giving our time, treasure, and talents so that others can know him. So, of course, the Macedonian church are joyfully generous because they're keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus, who joyfully and generously gave his life so that they could be saved. The second thing we learn is that the Macedonian church gave sacrificially. Paul said, I testify, I tell the truth, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And that was their own will to do that. They gave not only what they could afford, but far more than that. As I said before, the Macedonian church understands hardships, hurt, and brokenness. They understand persecution and poverty, and they were living it. Giving sacrificially means that they gave beyond their ability to give in order that the mission of God could keep advancing, and they did it joyfully. They understand persecution, but even more so, they understand what it means to be lost, what it means to be estranged from God. They, they understand what Jesus did to save them. He sacrificed everything. So they were willing to give even more than it made sense to give because they're keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus sacrificed. Jesus gave until it hurt. And they're just following him. The word sacrifice means that something has to be lost, forgone, or die for the gift to be made possible. And that is never easy. Sacrifice always involves risk, which also means sacrifice always involves faith. God is honored by faithful sacrifice. I've recently been reading a a book, C.S. Lewis, called The Silver Chair to my young son, Rocco. Uh, It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a part in the story, it's, it's the climax of the story, when the main characters are at a tense point where they might have to sacrifice themselves to be able to move the plan forward. While they're at that tense point, their guide reminds them that Aslan, the Jesus-like figure in the story, didn't tell us what would happen. He only told us what to do. So we better do it. Aslan didn't tell us what would happen. He only told us what to do. So we better do it. Being a Christian isn't just liking a nice guy that we like to learn about. Being a Christian is following a dead man who resurrected. The way we think about Jesus changes our choices. John Huss didn't know he'd be burned alive for standing firm in his faith. The Macedonian church didn't know the consequences of their sacrificial giving, but they did know the one who was willing to give his life for them. And that was enough to compel them to live differently. 
Of course the Macedonian church gave beyond reason so that others could know Jesus. They're following Jesus who gave beyond reason so that they could know him. And the third thing we notice in this passage is that, that people who are captivated by Jesus' love have a far greater redemptive imagination. People captivated by Jesus' love have a far greater redemptive imagination. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us, keeping with God's will. They were begging for an opportunity to share in the mystery of God advancing his gospel through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were so captivated by what Jesus had done, they didn't want to miss out on what he continued to do. They were giving to the mission in more ways than Paul could have imagined. Have you ever heard the saying, hurt people hurt people? Hurt people hurt people. I believe there's something uh, opposite to that that's also true. I believe healed people heal people. I believe helped people want to help people. I believe saved people want to see people saved. And the Macedonian church is a reflection of that. They're captivated by God's love for them, and it's contagious. It has to go forward. They don't want to keep it to themselves. I use that term redemptive imagination Redemptive imagination is the ability to see the way the world is and envision how it could be different if Jesus showed up. Redemptive imagination is the ability to see the way the world is and envision how it could be if Jesus showed up. Do you have a redemptive imagination? Do you ever walk into something that is dark and broken and immediately dream of what that could be like? if Jesus showed up into a place like that and changed everything? Do you long for the gospel to infiltrate the world around you, your family, your neighborhood, your workplace? How would they be different if Jesus was at the center of them? Entire school systems, not just children, but, but faculty and administrations who exist to glorify God. Poverty alleviation broken marriages, racial tensions, the orphan crisis. What stimulates your redemptive imagination? What causes you to think differently about the world? Not just seeing how it is, but how it could be if Jesus was present. What in this broken life would you like to see Jesus transform and make new? There's an old saying that has really grabbed the attention of my heart recently. If you want to see a resurrection, you've got to go to the cemetery. Do you hear that? If you want to see a resurrection, you've got to go to the cemetery. Far too often, Christians avoid dark and dirty places for fear of being contaminated, and that is not how Jesus lived. He knew that wherever he walked, he was bringing light and life to all who would receive him. Far too often, Christians live in fear instead of living in faith that we're not going to be contaminated by the world, but our faith in Jesus is infectious. Jesus conquered sin and death. If he is with us, 
then we bring that same victory into places of darkness and death. Can you name people and places around you that are like a spiritual cemetery? Where might God be calling you to go to bring something dead to life? That's what Jesus came to do. And if you're following him, you're going to find yourself in similar circumstances where you have an opportunity to see dead things brought to life. Recently, I was in a bar with a friend and in the middle of of a good conversation, I saw his posture changed. And we paused what we were talking about and he said, "I, I think there's a prostitution ring or maybe something sketchy going on right now. And my initial reaction was, we shouldn't be here right now. (laughs) The hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and I I admit that it was more fear than faith. What are the headlines going to look like on the one-year celebration of a church (laughs) where the pastor was in a place where a prostitution ring was broken up? And then a wave of truth came over me. This is exactly where the church needs to be. We insulate our lives with bright and shiny things and and safety, and we forget the mission of God to bring dead things to life. What cemetery is God calling you to step into? Where is there hurt and pain and death? Do you have the faith to step in? And to bring light and life. Because that's what the resurrection of Jesus does for us. We say that as a church, our mission is bringing God's story to life. That means we need to step into the cemetery. Church isn't a cruise ship. It's a rescue mission. God gave you a special purpose. God gave you a unique platform. Are you willing to live in such a way that's so different that you see people come alive? What is a story like John Huss's or or, or like the story of the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tell us? It tells us that we are also called to be sacrificially generous people. What are we going to do? What are we going to do to, to walk with God What are our takeaways for a passage like this? Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to celebrate communion together. In fact, if you're on the communion team, I want you to get ready to, to pass out communion. Communion is the most beautiful picture that we have of the fact that God was willing to joyfully and generously sacrifice for the glory of his Father and for the good of others. We're going to do communion a little bit differently today. Rather than having you come forward and and tear off bread and dip it into the cup, we're going to pass communion around to you. And if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to take one of the communion packets and just hold on to it for a couple of minutes. I'll explain what to do with it in a moment. But when that bowl is passed around to you and you take those elements from it, I want you to remember that Jesus came for you. When you were spiritually dead, Jesus came to the cemetery of your soul and brought you to life. Jesus came to you. Communion reminds us 
that while it would have been so easy for the scriptures, for John 3.16 to say, for God so loved his son that he gave him the world. But what that passage tells us is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. If you are a Jesus follower, we want to celebrate communion together because God gave for us. So that little packet that you received, if you pull the top off gently, you'll see a wafer that's like the bread. Jesus promised the bread was a reflection of his body that would be broken for us. Broken for our sins. Take that bread and eat it. Before Jesus went to the cross and he was at that meal, he passed around a cup of wine and he told his followers, this cup is like my blood that'll be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And that was good news to them. Go ahead and drink that cup. Doesn't it taste sweet that Jesus came for us? This would be a very opportunistic time to collect an offering, uh, but we're not going to do that right now. <laughs> I don't want to be like the, the, the priests in the 14th and 15th century that, that wanted a, a lucrative opportunity to get rich by manipulating other people. So instead of doing an offering right now, we're going to do a reverse offering. So the communion team is going to come forward and they're going to pass around baskets in the baskets are envelopes. We want everyone to take an envelope as it comes by you. Each of these envelopes that you're receiving right now has either a 10, a 20, or a $50 bill inside. We want you to have this for the purpose of being a blessing to someone else, okay? We want you to, to joyfully and sacrificially give this gift that's been given to you for the glory of God and for the good of others. And when you do this, uh, we want you to have your redemptive imagination activated. We want you to think and pray about how you're going to use this resource for the glory of God and for the good of others. In fact, if you open your envelope, you'll find out little instructions in there. We're not going to tell you how to use this gift. Uh, rather, we just want to give you guidelines for how this gift could be used. We want you to give it all for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's step one. That should be pretty easy. Step two, you might think about it creatively. You can give a gift on your own, but you might get together with your friends and family and say, what if we pulled our gifts together to give something bigger, to bless someone in a, in a, in a more uh, meaningful way? You can do that with your friends, your family, your community group. If, uh, if you've got kids, I would encourage you to invite your kids who have such vibrant imaginations about how they can light up the darkness with you. In fact, if you've got kids in King's Kids Ministry, they got a band. We didn't offer them envelopes of money. Uh, they got a band that says, love God, love others, make a difference, that they can wear as a reminder that they have the same calling that we have as adults. Bind together with people if you so choose 
Encourage each other, bolster one another's redemptive imaginations and consider what you might do with the gift that you've just received. We didn't tell you we were gonna do this because this isn't a gimmick to get people into church. This is a gift to get the church into the lives of others. My hope is that your redemptive imagination is activated, that you think about the cemeteries that you walk past each and every day and think about how God might be calling you to bring something dead to life. The third thing we want to ask you to do is, is would you tell us what you did with the money? We'll keep it anonymous, but, but we would love to hear what you choose to do with this money. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, we invite you to share that with us online at our website, kingscommunity.ch slash story. We're going to do that for a couple of reasons. One is because we're going to share these stories in a few weeks. In a few weeks, as a church, we're not going to be able to meet in this place, so we're going to meet at a different site. We're going to meet at a, at a place called Five Stones Artisan Brewery. That's where we're going to do church on February 16th. And that service is going to be different than what we do here. We're going to do songs and stories. We're going to sing God's praises and retell the stories of what people did with these resources. The reason that we're going to do that is because I believe God is going to lead you to do something beyond my imagination maybe beyond your neighbor's imagination. And when we share those stories for the glory of God, it will continue to activate our redemptive imagination, thinking about how we can bring life and light into a world that desperately needs it. Just like Paul, I believe you've got so much to offer, more than I could ever imagine, more than I could come up with on my own. The only other thing I'd encourage is, is for you to pray. Ask God to give you a great, big, redemptive imagination. Ask God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear where you might light up the darkness and make Jesus famous in the life of someone else. How many of you have heard of, of John Huss before you got here today? A few of you. Have any of you heard of, of a guy named Martin Luther? Just a few years after John Hust uh, was burned alive because of his faith, uh, there was a monk by the name of Martin Luther who was reading the Bible and his life was radically transformed by the good news of what Jesus did for him. And he heard the testimony of John Hus, and he decided that he was willing to give his life too. Martin Luther is often considered the, the father of the Protestant Reformation Truth be told, he's really just the first person to have survived the persecution. Because of Huss, because of men and women that preceded him, Martin Luther was able to literally change the world in such a way that we have worship gatherings like this. We have access to read the Bible in our own language and be transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. So as you steward your gift, you may change a day for one person, but you also have the capacity to change the entire world because that's the way that God works. God changes the world when he changes our choices. Will you be sacrificially generous for the glory of God and the blessing of others? Because God wants to do something amazing in you and through you. That's my prayer for this church. Heavenly Father, 
we look at the cross of your son. It's, it's humbling to think of the torment that our Savior went through just so that we could know you. Would you remind us of the extent of our lostness and the length that you were willing to go to bring our dead souls to life? And would you give us a redemptive imagination to bring that into the lives of others? God, help us to use these meager little gifts for the glory of your name. And we pray that you would change the world through it. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.